will be continuing in our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. We have been moving through chapter 4, where James issued several warnings against worldliness. In the previous section, he addressed his audience's speech. They had been speaking evil and making ungodly judgments against one another. In doing this, they blasphemed the law and the lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last section of chapter 4, James issues his final warning against worldliness. This time, he corrects their arrogant presumptuousness. Presumptuousness um, can be defined in a number of ways, but I think simply put, it has to do with somebody having a readiness to presume in conduct or thought as by saying or doing something without right or permission. It means to live in such a way where you're always presuming about your liberties and abilities in these sorts of things. Um, and I would say in an exaggerated way. So that's what it has to do with. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. I'd like to go ahead and read our text pray for God's help, and then get to work. This is what James says next. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Last verse, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we call upon you now and ask for your help. We ask that you help us with humility, that you help to make us humble, uh, that you help us to hear your word, that you help us to comprehend and understand your word, that you help us through the Holy Spirit to apply and live out your word. Father, we pray that you're glorified during this time, that you teach us about the right Christian attitude, which is not what we see represented in this text. We need to have a born-again attitude, born-again behavior when it comes to our planning and thoughts of the future and discussions about these sorts of things. And so, Father, we just pray that you teach us and that you convict us and that you transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word. So help us during this great time. Be glorified in all that is said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pick it up where we left off last week, and that would be at verse 13. Let's just go ahead and break this down. I'll read it again. James again says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Stop right there. Apparently, there were a number of materialistic materialistically focused Christian merchants within this congregation or the broader congregation that James wrote to. He might have been writing to multiple churches. These Christian 
merchants. Uh, they arrogantly mapped out their future destinations on the basis of profitability, making money, with no reference to the will of God. James is pointing his correction to this group or at this group. They are the ones that are in his crosshairs. The reason James is concerned here is because this behavior, like the other behaviors he identified in his letter, is inconsistent with born-again behavior. The desire, even the highest desire, of a born-again believer, a true Christian, should be to do the will of God. I like what MacArthur wrote. He said, nothing more clearly summarizes the character of a genuine believer than a desire to do the will of God. I'll tell you what, there are many, many examples of, of old saints who had that attitude and that strong desire to do the will of God. That was what they, uh, that was what was characterizing them during their lives. And we can learn from King David on this quite a bit. In Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, he wrote, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is, with, is within my heart. In Psalm uh, chapter 143, verse 10, he also wrote, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. I love how David refers to God's will as a firm footing. His will is a firm footing. It is the only firm footing. <laughs> Everything else is a slippery slope. Going from town to town to try to make a profit is a slippery slope. That's what these guys that he wrote to were trying to do. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my DJ business was just booming. I was getting 50 to 60 jobs a year. But last year was dismal. And this year will probably be the worst year yet. In fact, I have zero business because of this corona thing. My point is, is that making money as a DJ is a slippery slope. Having any sort of small business is a slippery slope. None of that stuff is guaranteed. It's not guaranteed at all. We, we don't know if we're going to make money tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to make money the next day. Um, it's, it's very unpredictable and uncertain. And the only sure thing in life is the will of God. His will will be done no matter what. Why would we not then focus on his will? Why would we not invest our time and our talent and our treasure in the only sure thing in life, and that is the will of God? Now, Jesus set for us the highest example of desiring God's will. In John chapter 4, verse 34, he told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in John chapter 6, verse 38, he declared, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I love that. Um, his food, his nourishment was to do the will of God. And then he clearly states that he came down here not to do whatever he wants, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. 
Now listen to what Jesus said about entering the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That is an amazing statement, an amazing statement. It is those who do the will of the Father who shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And what is the will of the Father? That we believe in the Son and that we obey um, Scripture, that we obey God's commands. So, Now, who is it who does the will of the Father? It is true believers. In his first epistle, John literally describes true believers as those who do the will of God and live forever. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. Being presumptuous and not including God in our planning or considering what his will might be in any given situation is totally inconsistent with being a believer. And that's the issue that, that James has with his audience here. That is exactly what they were doing. I like what R. Kent Hughes calls this mentality or behavior. He calls it fleshly presumption. It's like you're presuming in your flesh. And I'll tell you what I'd call it. I'd call it not only foolish to leave God out of your planning and to not take into consideration his will. That's, that's total foolishness. It's not only foolishness, but in my opinion, it is the height of arrogance. Arrogant people exclude God from their lives and plans. They do not feel that it is necessary to include him. You know, they've become so uh, self-important self and self-sufficient that they just really have no need for God. Everything is just going fine, and so they just don't see any need to have him in their lives or in their planning or in their conversations. They don't have to be cognizant of his will. Now, becoming self-made um, is the American dream. And sadly, many Christians have adopted this philosophy and basically made it their top priority. And they direct most of their time, talent, and energy toward this pursuit. They work, save, invest, work, save, invest, work, save, and invest. And they live as if this world is all there is. And when they pray, they do not ask God where they should go or what they should do. They don't factor God into that or his plans or will. What they do is they ask him to bless their plans and give them strength to carry them out. R. Kent Hughes calls this practical atheism. Practical atheism occurs when Christians arrogantly leave God out of their daily lives and plans. Is this not what James's readers, his audience, was doing? They were making plans to go here and there so they could make lots of money, but they totally left God out of it. They either forgot God or assumed that making money and God's will were one and the same. And that is a mistake that many, many evangelicals in America make. They think that just making a great living and being prosperous and profitable and God's will are synonymous, but they are not. There are many evangelicals in the United States that uh, 
could not fathom that God's will for them might be for them not to be profitable and prosperous, for them to have a mediocre income. Uh, they can't even fathom that, but that could be true of many, many Christians. Now, in the next line, James gives his readers a reality check. Let's move to verse 14. <clears throat> he says this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Basically, what he does here is he reminds them of two things. First, he reminds his audience of the uncertainty of life. And that's represented in his simple statement, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, three and a half weeks ago, eight men from RHC were at the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles with about 5,000 other men from all over the world. Today, the same eight men can't even leave their homes because of the coronavirus. I'm one of them. Now, I can, I can assure you, at least from my own perspective, that the coronavirus was not something that was on our minds, certainly not on my mind, while we were down there. We were not thinking of the coronavirus at all. We weren't scared of that. We weren't thinking about it. We weren't pondering it. We were absorbing so much biblical information and instruction and, and singing songs with all of these people. I mean, we just, that's, that was our mode. We weren't thinking about the coronavirus or anything like that. But when we got back, everything changed. And it seemed like it changed almost overnight. And, you know, civilization as we know it can literally change in the blink of an eye. And we are witnessing this. We are living it. Life in our own little community here was cracking a couple weeks ago. Now it's crawling. Why? because life is uncertain. It changes. The coronavirus has reminded us of several important things, hasn't it? Firstly, do not visit the wet markets in Wuhan during our next trip to China. I mean, that's just like playing Russian roulette. Don't go to that place. Number two, wash our hands regularly, right? How many times have you heard that? My hands are like dry and cracking now because I've washed them so many times. Number three, keep your fingers out of your eyes, keep your fingers out of your nose, if you're a nose miner, don't do that, and keep your fingers out of your mouth. And uh, since we now have that, that rule in place, um, I'm now realizing how frequently I actually touch my face, which is probably like a hundred times a day. And then the fourth thing that we're learning from the coronavirus, and I would say that this is of the highest importance, and that is the simple truth that is represented in James's statement. And that is, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't. None of us expected this thing to take off like this. None of us expected our lives to change so dramatically uh, in, within, a, uh, within a week or two, almost overnight. None of us expected this. We, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And the coronavirus has reminded us of that truth. And here's the thing. Since we do not know what tomorrow will bring, it seems pretty foolish to leave the one who knows all things out of our plans, doesn't it? 
mean, since we do not know what tomorrow will bring, but God is fully aware and totally knows and has planned every tomorrow, it just makes no sense to me to leave him out of the things that we're planning or talking about or doing. Why don't we go to him? He knows everything. And I think that that is James's point here in half of this verse. You're leaving the one who knows all things out of the the very thoughts and planning and conversations about things that you know nothing of. It just kind of blows his mind. So that's the first thing, that life's uncertainty. Second, James reminds them of the brevity of life. Uh, he actually uses a simile. Life is like what? A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When uh, my family lived on Miller Avenue, we had this great route. Rachel and I would would walk just about every day. It was just the perfect route. I don't know if you guys are walkers, but we like to get out and walk, and this was the ultimate route. And it took us down into Scenic Park, which I think is one of the prettiest parks in town. And during the winter time in the mornings, it would be cold and moist outside, and there would be a mist hanging above the warm grass. But when we returned an hour or so later, that mist was gone. It would dissipate. James says our lives are like this mist. One moment it's there, and the next moment it's gone. I'll tell you what, Job and King David were the masters of similes. They used similes to teach about the brevity of life. Job chapter 7 Verse 6a, this is where Job says this. He says, my days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. And in chapter 7, verse 9, Job said, just as a cloud dissipates and vanishes, those who die will not come back. And then again in chapter 9, verse 25a, Job says, my life passes more swiftly than a runner. And then David used these similes as well, or similar similes. Uh, in Psalm chapter 102, verse 3a, he said, For my days disappear like smoke. And in Psalm 102, verse 11, he says, my, my life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. I am withering away like grass. And then in Psalm 103, verse 15, he says, Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. Now, during Israel's 40-year wandering in the wilderness, Moses penned Psalm 90. In verse 12, he said, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Now, it would appear that James has a similar objective here. By saying what he's saying to his audience, he wants his audience to understand brevity, how life is short. Why? So they can grow in wisdom. The one who understands the brevity of life and doesn't lose sight of it will wisely depend on God, seek God's guidance, pursue God's will, and they will also make the most of every opportunity because they understand the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16. But the one who is ignorant of brevity, the one who suppresses brevity, the one who pushes brevity out of his or her mind will be unwise and presumptuous and ill-equipped and reactive in every situation. 
People buying $200 in toilet paper at Costco kind of proves my point. How do they know they'll be around to use it all? And now I'm hearing that some of them are trying to take back some of that toilet paper because they don't need it, but Costco won't let them return it. I think this is the Lord's way of avenging those of us who had a hard time finding toilet paper over the last couple of weeks. In verses 13 to 14, James basically told his audience this. This is what he's saying. You're making plans to go out and make a bunch of money, but you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Life is uncertain and short. How do you know you'll still be alive to go and do it? That's what he's saying. In the next line, James gives the godly alternative to arrogant presumptuousness. This is what born-again believers should think and say as they discuss their daily lives and their plans and their futures. Let's move to verse 15. James says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So, the godly alternative has to do with humbly acknowledging God's divine sovereignty over our lives and endeavors. Rather than foolishly presuming that we will be alive in the future or that we will be able to go here and there and do this or that, we should think and say, if the Lord wills, I'll be around to go and do it. But we need to be careful here. Verbalizing God's will or acknowledging God's will cannot become something we merely hang on the end of a conversation. It must arise and spring forth from a heart and attitude of true humility. We need to believe it and mean it when we say it. In the name of Jesus is not something we simply slap on the end of our prayers as an incantation to ensure that we will be, you know, that our prayers will be heard and answered in the affirmative. John 14, verse 14. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are submitting ourselves and our requests to him and to his will. Likewise, if the Lord wills, is not something we should simply slap on the end of a planning meeting or conversation about the future as an incantation to clear us of any presumptuous irreverence. When we employ this expression, we are humbly acknowledging God's divine sovereignty over our lives and all of our endeavors. Now, the expression that James uses, if the Lord wills, doesn't appear in the Old Testament, but it is used several times in the New Testament, especially by the Apostle Paul. Upon leaving Ephesus to set sail for Caesarea, he said, I will return to you if God wills. We see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. In response to repeated attacks on his apostleship, Paul said this to the Corinthians, he said, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. 
The Apostle Paul used similar expressions that mean the same thing in other passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, and Romans chapter 1, verse 10, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 24. Uh, the author of Hebrews used a similar expression. After exhorting his readers to grow up and move beyond elementary teachings, he said, and God permitting, we will do so. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now this expression became immensely popular during the Puritanic era. The Puritans loved it, and they filled their speech and correspondence with the Latin equivalent, Dio Valente, which means God willing. The Methodists during that time also adopted the phrase and began to sign their letters, placards, and circulars about future events with the initials DV for Dio Valente. James is telling his audience and us to humble ourselves, jettison all arrogant presumptuousness, and acknowledge in our hearts and with our lips God's sovereignty over our lives and endeavors. I like what R. Kent Hughes wrote. He said, Dio Valente is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our lives. What he's saying is that that's what our hearts should sing. We should always be cognizant of God's will and acknowledging God's will as we conduct the affairs of our lives. When we say that, hey, next week I'm going to go here, we should follow that with Lord willing or Dio Valente, God willing, because it's we're only going to be able to do that if God has willed that. And so we don't want to presume that we're going to be able to do things or be living in a week or two. We need to um, trust in God in this situation and acknowledge his will in this situation because he is the sustainer of our lives and he has our, our days all plotted out. And so we need to make sure that God is, is in this thing with us as we make these discussions and plans. Dio Valente is something that I think that we should all adopt. We should all have that as a kind of mantra. God willing, we will do what we do, God willing. We will go here or there, God willing. I will see this person, God willing. I, I will go into another town and DJ and make a few bucks, God willing. And we need to also be sober-minded that God may not will for us to do some of these things, and they may not metastasize. They may not happen. In the next line, James identifies something else his audience was doing. This just adds fuel to the fire. Let's move to verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And he says, all such boasting is evil. So these Christian merchants who were making all these plans, they, they not only talked about their future plans to go to this town or that town to make a profit, they arrogantly boasted about it, boasted about it with one another or to one another. They were bragging to each other. They were saying things like, well, you know what? When I get to Philippi in a couple days, I'm going to sell so much purple linen, I'm going to put Lydia out of business. Now, that's not literally what they said, but that kind of captures the mode of boasting. And maybe somebody would respond to that guy who was boasting like that, and, and he would say, in your dreams, Jehoshaphat, I guarantee I'll sell more than you. I'm coming back with stacks on stacks, and I'm going to make it rain? Denariuses. They were literally 
boasting to one another about all these prospects and about their future plans and about the things that were they were going to do. And when I read verse 16, I was reminded, I was reminded of the time that Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest Babylonian king, stood on his balcony and arrogantly boasted about his vast opulent kingdom. From his veranda, from his balcony, he could, he could see the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he stood there gazing upon it all. And he declared, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city and my royal residence. To do what? To honor God? No, he doesn't say that. He says, to display my majestic splendor. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And you know what? Divine judgment came swiftly while he was still boasting and bragging about everything that he had built. Nebuchadnezzar immediately fell to the ground, landed on all fours, and then spent the next seven years thinking he was an ox. And he went around in all the pastures, munching on grass. Daniel chapter 4, verses 31 to 33. You know, boasting about our achievements, boasting about our earning potential, boasting about our future, boasting about anything in general. James says all such boasting is evil. And I'll tell you what, if God can cause a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind and act like an ox for seven years, he can certainly discipline his children when they pridefully boast about this or that. You know, when they boast about their future plans. Didn't James already identify one of God's disciplinary measures back in verse 6? He did. What is one of God's disciplinary measures toward his children when they become prideful and boastful, when they become arrogantly presumptuous? What? is one of his disciplinary measures. He withholds his greater grace from the prideful, doesn't he? That is one of his disciplinary measures. Now, after correcting and teaching them, James issues a, a challenge in the very last line to his readers or to his audience. Let's move to verse 17. Listen to this. He says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this almost sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? It does to me. And I tell you, I read a few commentaries on it, and there's quite a few guys out there and probably some gals who think that this verse is misplaced. They think that it was kind of added on later. And it doesn't really fit. I mean, you can make it work, but it doesn't really fit with the context. That's what they say. It was an add-on by some future scribe. I totally disregard that interpretation or view of this verse. I'm with Spurgeon. I believe it belongs here. I believe it was written by James right at this particular moment. And I believe it fits with the context perfectly. I really do. And, and what we see here, and maybe we need to build a little background for it, but let me say this. There are two basic ways 
we sin. There is a sin of commission and a sin of omission. A sin of commission is a sin we take action to commit, whether in thought, word, or deed. Okay, so a sin of commission is something that we just blatantly do. We engage it. We take action to engage that sin, and we do it. A sin of omission is different. A sin of omission is a sin that is the result of not doing something God's Word teaches us to do. I would call a sin of omission, it is the sin of disregarding God's instruction. Disregarding God's instruction. Disregarding God's clear commands in Scripture to us. So the sin of, or a sin of commission, is a sin we take action to commit. A sin of omission is a sin that we don't take action to commit. It's something that we just are supposed to do that we don't do. That's the two types of, or two ways of sinning. Here, James challenges his audience to do the right thing, which they now know. And yet, if they fail to do it, they will be guilty of the sin of omission. Now, the question is, what is the right thing, according to James? What was he referring to? Right? He said it here. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do. What is the right thing to do? Now, some commentaries say it's basically the right thing is everything that he said in his letter so far. And some say it's everything that he said in his letter altogether, all five chapters. I disagree. I don't think that James was referring to the right thing being everything that he said so far. I don't think it would be unsafe to interpret it that way, but I don't think that's what he was referring to. I believe he was referring to what he just said in verses 13 through 16. So, what has he basically said? What are we drawing from? What, what meaning are we drawing from what he has said in the previous verses? What is the right thing according to the context, according to 13 through 16? I'll tell you what it is. The right thing is repenting of their arrogant presumptuousness and evil boasting, right? Casting those things aside, repenting and turning away from those things. The right thing has to do with including God in their planning, right? They weren't including God in their planning, so the right thing to do is to have God in their planning, to acknowledge him in their planning, to rely on him in their planning. And I would say it also, the right thing has to do with humbly acknowledging and even verbalizing God's sovereignty over their lives and endeavors. You know, using uh, Dio Valente, God willing, even saying that when they're planning, well, we want to go here and do this, Lord willing, well, we want to do that, Lord willing. That is the right thing. It is a combination of everything that James has said in 13 through 16. That's what the right thing is. And the next step for them was what? It was to do the right thing. But if they rejected James's divinely inspired instruction in these verses in this passage, the very word of God, and if, they, and if they failed to obey it, they would commit yet another sin, the sin of omission. In other words, 
they would not do what they're instructed to do. And that is the sin of omission. It's when we know that we're to do this right thing, but we fail to do it. So the right thing has to do with all of that, repenting and including God and acknowledging God's sovereignty over their lives and these things. That's the right thing. That is what they had to do. They had to do what James instructed them to do. But if they rejected his instruction and failed to do it, they were just heaping another sin on a, an already growing pile of sins. Closing. In 1744, King Louis XV developed an illness that threatened to end his life. And all of France was in great terror over this. Paris, one of the most famous cities of all time, especially in France, Paris seemed like a city taken by storm. The churches resounded with supplications and, and groans, and the prayers of the priests and people were continually interrupted by weeping and wailing. The widespread profound affection and tender interest for his well-being brought him the surname of Louis the Well-Beloved. The love of the people for King Louis XV was not inspired by what he had done because he was young. Their love for him was based on what they hoped he would do. For years, France had been crushed under the heel of a cruel tyrant, King Louis XIV, and they regarded the ascension of Louis XV as the dawn of a brighter and happier day. They loved Louis XV because in him rested all their hopes. That was 1744. Thirty years later, in 1774, Louis XV lay sick again. But this time, the churches did not resound with supplications and groans, and the prayers of the priests and of the people were not interrupted by weeping and wailing because no prayers were being offered. Why? Because Louis XV, Louis the Well-Beloved, had become the most hated man in France. Now, how did he go from being utterly loved to utterly despised in 30 years? Was it because of what he did? No, it was because of what he didn't do. He did nothing. We have heard God's instruction through James. We are to repent of our arrogant presumptuousness and evil boasting. We are to include God in our planning, and we are to humbly acknowledge and even verbalize God's sovereignty over our lives and endeavors. We should make Dio Valente our life call and life statement. This is the right thing. We have heard it and now we know it.
Only one thing remains. We must do the right thing. But if we fail to do it, we sin.